everybody, and welcome to More of a Comment Than a Question. My name is Paul Connor, and joining me is my co-host. <laughs> I didn't think of, I didn't think of any witty put down this week. Uh, Rachel Hartman. Rachel, how I'm are you? I'm doing well. Uh, I feel like we're really disappointing our listeners with no uh, <laughs> witty put downs, but I don't know. Maybe that's and not what they're she here sucks. for. <laughs> no, no, yeah, probably not. Um, so yeah, uh, and we're also joined by a very special guest this week uh katie herzog welcome katie thank you guys for having me i appreciate it i, I understand so i have n- i have to admit i haven't listened to your show before but I, what i'm picking up here is that you two are enemies who hate each other is that what this is, <laughs> is that the vibe? no we're, we're we're friends um but at some point uh paul said something about or i don't know who started it but I think I started it i introduced her as kind of like my sidekick yeah and i was a little offended by that so and- I retaliated the next week and things escalated. <laughs> Got it. I'm familiar with this dynamic. Yeah. I like it. <laughs> yeah. So um, Katie is a journalist and a podcaster and the main host of mm-hmm. one of our favorite podcasts, Block, <laughs> Blocked and host. Reported, uh, that, we, uh, that we enjoy a lot. Neither of us are, are primos, I'm sorry to say. But we do oh. share our password and login details with about 10, 10 people. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not true at all. Anyway, so, uh, Katie, the reason we have you on the podcast is, uh, so you just published a uh, really, really interesting piece um, about a Me Too scandal involving an academic called Florian Jaeger. And um, you were kind of on Twitter complaining <laughs> that no, nobody had invited you on any on any podcast or anything yeah. yet. So I took pity on you. Thank you. Uh, I appreciate that. I'm just giving you a break, giving you a big break, and and letting you letting you come on the pod to talk about it. But yeah, Thank no, um, we'd love to hear a bit about the piece. But yeah, just about uh, the reaction of everybody to the piece as well. But do you want to um, set the table? We don't want to, I guess. You could probably spend the whole time tell, yeah. retelling the story. Yeah. Uh, and we don't want to do that exactly. Um, so maybe just like the cliff notes. We're yeah. assuming, I mean, I thought your podcast, so the last bar pod, publicly available bar pod, um, you covered it in, in good detail. And all, all, also people can read yeah. the piece. I'll just say like I detail, but. listened to the pod and read the piece and I could not follow the pod. It was like too too many names, too many details. Yeah. Um, but once yeah. I read the article, it all made sense. So I really recommend uh, any listeners to just pause here, go read the article, and then come back and have all of the details. Um, but if anyone's too lazy to do that, ju- yeah, just give us the like abridged version. Yeah, this is, this is one of the difficulties of telling this story because – like the version that you read and the version that we that we I this is the story the version of the story that I told on the show is vastly simplifies what happened. There are so many twists and turns that I didn't get into. There are characters, there are way more characters involved that I didn't get into because in terms of storytelling, it's really difficult to tell this story. So there were there were like eight main main characters in this story. It's just too many. Um, yeah, so it's available at Reason.com if anybody wants to read it. Um, Everybody should read it. Yeah, so this took place at the University of Rochester. It started in 2016, and to vastly simplify it, this professor in the brain and uh, brain and I'm forgetting the name brain and cognitive sciences department named Florian Yeager, he was accused not by his victims. He was basically accused by his colleagues of having victimized students. 
The colleagues complained. There were three main accusers. There were eight in total, but they were like the husbands and wives of some of these accusers because this is academia and people are all married within this department and it's incredibly incestuous. Um, so they're basically, there were three main accusers, Richard Aslan, who's a former department head, Jessica Cantlon and Celeste Kidd, who were professors in the department. And, uh, and they accused Florian of sleeping with his students, sleeping with students who were under his students in his lab. They said that there had been complaints by current students. They reported this to the university. It wasn't true. Uh, the university did four investigations, and there ha- were no complaints by current students. There were complaints about things like he was, he was German. He's incredibly uh, open and honest in a way that <laughs> rubs his American students the wrong way. Um, not to rely too heavily on stereotypes here, but he is, he's German. Um, he, he's very candid and he would give feedback to students and colleagues that many of them perceived as, uh, harsh. He had some other character flaws. He, when he was younger, he did sleep with a number of graduate students, none who were in his, under, uh, in his lab or under his tutelage, but he had, he was 30 when he got to the department. So between the ages of like 30 and 33, he slept with, I think four students, Including one uh, one undergrad who was a senior in her in her last year, but this wasn't this wasn't banned according to departmental policy at the time or now because they weren't his students. Um, but so all of this sort of came back to haunt him later, and these complaints. The really interesting thing about this is that the accusers basically, for lack of a better term, lied about who was accusing him of things. So they had a they they misrepresented the very people who they said were victims. So they said that Florian's ex girlfriends were that these relationships weren't consensual, that they were sort of traumatized by these relationships. And when investigators went and interviewed these women, they said that's not true. So there's some real irony there of these people, you know, and also and also use their stories non consensually. So they were saying that these people who had actually been in consensual relationships, they non consensually used their stories to make a point about this guy who they didn't like. So the whole thing is very confusing, but it resulted in eight people resigning from the, the, the university, including the, uh, including the president of the university, um, in addition to these four investigations, which cost the university, I don't know how much money, one alone cost the university $4.5 million, and there were four of them. Uh, the university, even after these four investigations found that Florian hadn't violated university policy, and that his accusers had misrepresented what happened, that they broke confidentiality by talking about this within the department and outside of the department. They sued the school, and the school ended up settling with them for $9.4 million. So that's the sort of Cliff's Notes version. I understand that none of this makes sense because <laughs> it's a very convoluted story. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, if you read it, it actually makes more, more um, hopefully at least, it, uh, it <laughs> the story is a little bit easier to tell. Yeah. I think the timeline more or less makes sense to me. Like I've, I read the piece, I listened to your pod and I was kind of re-listening to the pod earlier. One thing that I want to ask about is, so it seems like, yeah, there was like some problematic behavior, a lot of dating students. Like, I mean, I was, I think the accusers, consensual is an interesting concept because I saw on Twitter, one of the accusers was kind of just arguing that, well, an undergrad can't engage in a consensual relationship with a professor because of the power differential, uh, which is kind of a philosophical point, maybe more so than a a legal one. um, Yeah. But it, it seems like if it wasn't for that hiring decision, maybe none of 
this happens. Yeah. So, so that this, seems like a really so, key turning point in this. Yeah. So in 2016, the spark for all of this was that in 2016, the university, the department is trying to replace a professor who had died suddenly in his 50s. And this professor was really, he was really beloved and his focus was on vision. And so a number of people in the department wanted to replace him with someone who also focused on vision. And they found this candidate, Michel Ricci, an Italian guy, Italian neuroscientist, and they wanted to bring him on. But there, were, there was also a, uh, a competing candidate or candidates, and Jessica Cantlin in particular wanted somebody who was closer to her specialty and so more likely to um, collaborate with her. And in, this, in one of these meetings to discuss this hiring, Cantlin said, we can't hire Rucci because he's married to his graduate student, which is illegal. You can't talk about, as you guys know, you can't talk about these things when it comes to hiring. People's families are off limits. This is a, it's not just unethical, it is illegal. But Cantlon brought this up, and so this this it started this very heated discussion within this this meeting. Somebody actually left the department. Florian was was on the side of we can't talk about this. It's not relevant, and we can't talk about it. And um and so somebody actually left, like stormed out of the meeting because they were so pissed that they continued to talk about this. After this, the department voted anyway to uh, to hire this guy Michelle Ricci and his wife as a as a spousal hire. And then Cantlon, that's when she started this campaign against Florian. So she went to Richard Aslan, the former department head, and said, hey, uh, you know, we can't hire another sexual predator. And if, if Rucci is hired, I will leave. Um, and that's what started this whole, this whole bizarre saga where they started accusing Florian of things that he hadn't done. And to be sure, he had made some mistakes. At one point, he lived with a graduate student early in his career. He shouldn't have done that. Um, she was one of the later accusers. But the, the story that was the interesting thing to me about this story, a couple things. One, you know, it was really it was covered by the media. It was all over the press, but they really only told one side of the story. And two, people were the investigations did find that Florian made people uncomfortable. But there's some fuzziness between were they made uncomfortable because of Florian, because of Florian's actual behavior or about the rumors that were circulating around him. Right. So it's this sort of this reinforcing mechanism where maybe he did some bad stuff. Yeah. Like bad isn't even the right word. He didn't violate any university policies, but had had these sort of um, made some made some poor decisions, I would say. But was it those decisions themselves? Was it that behavior or was it sort of the rumor mill that actually blew this thing up into a much bigger story than it had to be? And it totally destroyed his life, and it and it quite literally nearly destroyed the department. So there was talk at one point about actually splitting the department up. Um, people were ready to leave, and then people ended up did, did end up quitting. There, so I didn't get into this in the piece just because, as you mentioned, there's a lot of characters, and I uh, wanted to limit the number of names people had to sort of try to keep wrap their brains around. But one of the there's a woman at, at the University of Georgetown. She had been in the department. She'd been in the department head. Name's Alyssa Newport. She's now at Georgetown. She signed on to all of these complaints about Florian, even though she wasn't in the department. Still, she married. She's married to her former student. Hmm. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know that's pretty funny. So it's okay when she does it, well, um, but was not okay when when Michelle Ricci did it. Or was probably a gender difference there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in the power, I think there's an interesting conversation we had about power dynamics. And there's a reason that workplaces, you know, uh, prohibit relationships between bosses and and employees or between uh, students and 
teachers. There's a reason for that. Um, mm. But all relationships have, have power dynamics. Mm. All of them do. Someone's more attractive. Someone's richer. Um, there's sex and gender roles play into it. Age plays into it. Um, and I think there is a lot of infantilizing. This idea that a, that a 22-year-old isn't can't consent to a relationship. 22-year-olds are not children. We might treat them like children, but they are not children. Um, and I think I think this especially happens when when women are involved. That there's there's this idea that women can't possibly make their own decisions. And um, I, personally, I find that a little bit offensive. Mm. I have a question. So, this did Rucci actually end up at the school? Mm -hmm. Him and his wife and his wife. Yeah. And his wife. So Jessica Cantlon, she told faculty that she wanted to that she was going to try to scuttle the negotiations between Rucci Mm. and the school. So she went to his wife and she told his wife, who was visibly pregnant at the time, that the university had a bad maternity leave policy. And she also told her, you know, you're overqualified. They were offering her. I'm not sure what the position was, a researcher position or a lecturer position. Um, you're overqualified for this. You deserve more. So she, so and then later it would emerge that she, you know, didn't actually want Ruchi and his wife to, to come there. So uh, the speculation is that this was not some some good faith attempt, you know, feminist attempt mm. to warn someone that this mm. was actually her attempt to um, get the candidate that she liked in, in the door. Yeah. Mm. So my sorry. Go ahead, uh, Cantlin. So after this this faculty meeting, which was incredibly heated, people are storming out and, and people are accusing Cantlin of, of breaking the law and but didn't seem to, f- to face her. And then, but she was able to recruit Aslan to this campaign against mm-hmm. Jaeger incredibly effectively. Like he, he almost became the leader of it, it seems. And there's, yeah, there's stories of did. him emailing, emailing people, telling them that he'd slept with 18 students or something like this when... As you were saying, the, yeah. the real number, the real number is four, and and it was consensual and not. Why do you think? Why do you think Aslan joined this campaign so vigorously? And do you think that was related to the cultural moment? That's a good question, and and none of the accusers would speak to me for the piece, yeah. and I would have asked them that question. But I did ask ask his former colleagues. So Aunt La- so Aslan also resigned. He was really he'd been really well liked in the department. Um, he's in the in the NAS. He's very, very well regarded in this field, and but he'd done he'd, he'd done something in 2013. So in 2013, graduate student had gone to the then department head, a guy named Greg DeAngelis, and complained about about Florian Yeager. Nothing remotely sexual. She basically said, "I don't like him." Uh, she had two two incidents that she brought up. She said that at one point he walked into this shared office that she this office that she shared with a number of other people. And he took a post-it note off of her colleague's desk, and she, and he stood behind her writing a note, and that bothered her. And then he also, at a party, he asked to take her photo, she declined, and then he took it anyway. So those were the two incidents that that Celeste, or I'm sorry, that Katura Bixby, this student, um, brought to Greg DeAngelis. DeAngelis took this seriously and approached Florian and basically was like, you know, your behavior. He couldn't be specific because of, mm-hmm. of you know, rules meant to protect accusers. But he said there's been these complaints. Uh, you know, you need to work on your behavior and the way you're perceived. And Florian apparently took that really seriously. And he was really upset. You know, he didn't he didn't know who was who was making these complaints. And he was upset both the, the complaints and the fact that the whoever was making them hadn't just come to him. But. So she came to Greg DeAngelis in November of 2013, or in fall of 2013. Six months earlier, that spring, she had gone to to Richard Aslan, who was her advisor, 
and made the same complaints. And Aslan had, uh, as far as we can tell, had completely ignored her. So my theory is that that also tied into it. There had been this complaint, wasn't sexual in nature, but there'd been this complaint about against Florian to him, and he had ignored it. So three years later, when he hears that Florian sleeps with students and that there's current, com- current complaints against him, just trying to put myself in his shoes, I would have felt terrible. You know, and I'm sure he believed that. I'm sure that he be- he believed his colleagues too, because who would lie about something like that? Mm-hmm. He also apparently is very competitive by nature. A bunch of different people in the department told me this. He's just a hyper-competitive guy. He'd been with the department for 30 years, or with the university for 30 years. He was one of the founding members of the department. And he kept threatening to quit, and the university kept being like, okay, quit. And that, from what his colleagues told me, that would have been a huge ego blow to him. Um, and then also, he probably just really believed these things. And as one, col- one, of, one of his colleagues told me, he said, you know, she's, or, I can't remember who it was, he or she said, um, you know, he probably believed this in the beginning, and then by the time he realized that they were had basically snookered him, then it was just too late. So this is all speculation without having actually heard heard him mm. explain what was going on uh, in his brain. But, you know, he'd been with the university forever. He was really well-liked. And this almost swore up the department, but for him personally, you know, he came out looking like a hero to some people. The NAS gave him an award. The two other, uh, the two women, the main women, Celeste Kidd and Jessica Cantlon, became these icons of Me Too. They were in Time Magazine, when Time Magazine did that that People of the Year with the Silence Breakers. So they had people like Taylor Swift and Megyn Kelly and Ashley Judd on the cover of their magazine. They were in that. So they really became, all three of them benefited from this, not just financially, uh, you know, Celeste Kid is now at Carnegie Mellon, Mellon Jessica Cantlon's at UC Berkeley. Um, I think you got that mixed or up. Or maybe I, I reverse that. Kid yeah. is at Berkeley. Yeah. Kid is at Berkeley and Cantlon's at, at Carnegie Mellon. So they benefited from this. So there's all sorts of reasons why somebody... And this started before me too, but it... it so they talked to the press. They talked to the media. Mother Jones breaks this story in September 2017. Mies 2 starts in October 2017. So the time for that, the timing for them was so good. So good. Um, and for Florian, of course, it was terrible. But they really, they became icons of this movement. Um, it's just that their stories were mostly not true. And this is what four investigations found, that they had, uh, they spun these. Like at one point, they filed a EEOC complaint, and they said that at one of Florian's lab retreats, a student overdosed on drugs it was a pot brownie and it what the student was his longtime partner who's a professor so they just you know they took they would take these like something there'd be a small a small grain of truth and it, that was a pot brownie given to her by a student so take something with a small grain of truth and then blow it way out of proportion uh another student at one point they said in this complaint that a student one of florian's exes had cried in a professor's office insinuating that this was because of her relationship with Florian. When investigators talked to her, it turned out that she'd cried in this professor's office because she just found out that her sister had been in a car accident. At one point, Aslan got a hold of a of one of his advisees' student records or transcripts under false pretenses, and then emailed her and said, "I can't remember what the what the exact wording was, but basically said, you know, we don't want you to be used by men like Florian." Uh, just sort of pressuring her to complain about him. 
And she didn't have any complaints about him, which she told Aslan, and then he continued to misrepresent her and future complaints. So these people did wildly unethical things. Four separate investigations found the same things, and they were handsomely rewarded for it. So um, I think we want to, yeah, get into a little bit of how the piece uh, was received. And I, one question I have for you is, are you at all worried that um, by writing a piece like this, you might be making it seem more rewarding and lucrative for people to make false allegations? Um, because like, you're- no, I'm, yeah. I'm not, I'm not worried. I mean, I'm telling this story as it is, and I don't, this is not, like, the story, it, what I don't do is go into sort of the, there's always the option to hedge, and I could have put in something like false complaints are really rare. I don't actually know how rare they are. I don't know that, you know, you can, you can find some data. I'm sure I could Google it right now, and it'd say, like, 2% of complaints are found to be false. I wouldn't know if that's even an accurate statistic or whatever it would be. Um, but I didn't hedge in the piece because this is just one story. Right. I don't think people should extrapolate more about the Me Too movement. This is just one story. Um, and I, I do find it sort of ironic that people like the, the response was was really quite good for the most part. You know, a few people called me an apologist or a misogynist or whatever. That's always sort of sort of inevitable. Um, but I think this idea that it's not important to debunk false claims, especially claims that have been repeated over and over in the media, that that isn't virtuous, that that isn't important, is I just find that bizarre. Um, you know, under other circumstances, I, can, I can't think of anything much more horrifying than being falsely convicted for a crime. Of course, there are ne- never any actual criminal complaints against Florian. But, the, you know, someone spends time in jail or, you know, even worse, it's, you know, there's a death penalty case we find out later that somebody was falsely accused. I can't think of, of much worse than that. Um, and, and I, you know, Florian's case wasn't that, but it certainly destroyed his life in many ways. Um, so to me, I just, this isn't much about the larger Me Too movement. This is just about this one particular story. And I think it's worth telling, even if it, and, you know, I do think we need more scrutiny. You know, Florian's story was repeated over and over and over again in the press. Basically, nobody even attempted to find out what happened. I mean, sure, there was some there was some reporting that was better than others. Mother Jones did a particularly egregiously bad job. But I think as reporters, we need to be skeptical of all stories, including Florian's story. The thing about his that makes it that makes me clear on what happened is because there's so much documentation and so much you can see the the details in the investigations. Um, but I think right. I think as reporters, it's always important to be skeptical of these stories, even if you think that you might have that you might be sympathetic towards the the so-called victim. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you because for outsiders that haven't you know spent four months working on this, it is really complex, right? And it's it's there's there's you know so many accusations and then so many mm-hmm. bits and pieces of evidence. Uh, and I saw I, I you know. I just wanted to ask you, like, what do you what do you think uh, are the most clear instances of misrepresentation from accusers where we can really be confident as outsiders? No, you really like misrepresented this. And then also on the other side, like, what do you think are the the most compelling claims about things Florian did that, that you have good reason to believe after looking into this? Sure. Um, so in terms of uh, things that Florian actually did, 
Um, he did live with a graduate student. This was brief. Uh, this was Celeste Kidd. Basically, he was going to Europe, and he offered to let her stay at her at his apartment. And then when he got back, expecting her to move out, she said that she couldn't find a place in Rochester, and he allowed her to stay. This was a really bad idea. Um, you know, they were they they weren't that far apart in age. They were friends, but it was still a really bad idea. And this would come back and haunt him later. But there's things like okay. In this EEOC complaint, Celeste makes it sound like he has he's like constantly sexually harassing her. I think he definitely they talked graphically about I don't know if it was graphically. They talked about sex in a way that you probably shouldn't do with your student, but they were friends, so the so the line is blurry there, right? Um like at one point he this is so in the complaint this is this is bizarre, but she says that he stuck she had some beans on a stove and he stuck his finger in the beans and said, Celeste, your beans feel really weird. <laughs> and that this was sexual harassment. He told me that what happened is that there were some beans, like they were soaking, you know, like dried beans soaking on a stove. And he, I think he was trying to figure out what they were. And that it was just sort of a weird thing that he did. But this, but this came back later. This was reframed as to be sexual. When I, from his perspective, or at least from what he told me, it wasn't sexual at all. So there were like small things like this, like, you know, like saying that the, that this student had been crying in her professor's office about Florin when really she was crying about her sister, stuff like that. Um, that really, I think, just cast doubt on, they, they just, they, they basically reframe things to be duplicitous, which is not hard to do. Uh, there were, there was a series of, of Facebook messages between, Celeste and Florian. Yeah, I read those. Yeah. It's pretty interesting. You, they're flirty. I, what did you think about them? So, yeah, like if you read it, they're really conversing as like friends, like you said. Yes. Like, uh, and there's a lot of talk about, oh, next time you come, we'll have to like sit on the porch and drink. And then yeah. she's like, yeah, that sounds awesome. Like, can't wait, yada, yada, yada. And then. Maybe, like, hmm, that party incident's pretty interesting. So, like, hearing your piece and, and the pod, it certainly seems like there's, there was a situation where she kind of had a crush on him yeah. and then showed up at this party, but he was there with another woman and she got super upset and left. And then later that became allegations about he groped somebody at the party, which there's no, no other witness says happened. And then supposedly the woman that got groped says it never happened. Right. So, um, yes. So, yeah. So Celeste, like at, like at one point she, she handed these partially, the partial notes from the, not the notes, partial transcripts of these Facebook conversations and emails sort of stripped of context. And if they're stripped of context, you can see how they might make Florian look bad, but put together as a whole, what comes across to me is a budding friendship that is slightly flirtatious and it seems like she has a crush on him. Like, that's that's what I read from these. And I think that he sort of encourages that. Like, he's flirtatious at what, as well. And I think that's how he was with everybody. And this sort of... And, I, and I've, you know, he was... Despite his personality flaws, he was too direct. He didn't have good boundaries in terms of knowing what's appropriate and what's not. At one point, he... Uh, at, a, at some sort of party, 
he told, said to a professor, told a, prof a professor that a student found him attractive while she was standing there. And this was humiliating to her. So he did cross boundaries and stuff like that. He didn't have, this was in his early years at the school, he didn't have a good sense of what was appropriate and what wasn't. And uh, he was sort of immature. Um, but, you know, if you, if, you, if you sort of know that and you realize that he was like this with everybody, it's easy to see how how just from reading these notes it seems like they're sort of flirting with each other and that he wasn't later it turns out that he wasn't actually sexually interested in her and i think that she was hurt by that um because i can see how from their their dialogue that it would seem as though he was interested in her i think that was a mistake he should have had clearer boundaries um and he was young he was he was you know 30 years old in his first year of teaching he just finished his phd and here this woman comes in and they have a good a good connection. Uh, it just turns out that it was the <laughs> friendship he probably shouldn't have had in the first place. And one that certainly would come back and bite him in the ass later. So he, he certainly, you know, he, he made some mistakes. But I also heard from people, and I didn't make this clear enough in the piece, Florian was really popular. He was really well-liked. Um, he sort of, at the, you know, had sort of this gregarious personality. Someone who people had strong feelings about. But he's a charismatic guy. Um, you know, I can see I can see why people liked him as well. I was wondering um, what your thoughts are about, like, if someone like that is making people in their workplace feel uncomfortable. Because, um, like, he was, like, yes, he was liked, but also it is clear from everyone, from all the accusers' comments, and there's a lot of examples of, like, him saying things that really are, like not okay to say um like you know commenting on people's appearance and talking about what it would be like to have sex with them things like that just are make people uncomfortable like even if there's no particular like rules against it and you can't i guess like my question is sure. what do you think should be done in situations like those i think what should be done is exactly what what happened which was his department had went and had a talk with him and he changed his behavior um, so there were no complaints about Florian after after Greg DeAngelis had this talk with him. Um, so I think that's a that's a really good resolution. Yeah. You, some, there's a complaint, your mm. boss comes to you, and you change your behavior. And what if he hadn't changed his behavior? He did. Well, I know, but I'm just saying, like hypothetically. Oh well, I mean, if some if you're if you're making people uncomfortable in a workplace, then it becomes an HR issue, and and you know your bosses should deal with it. There should be some sort of, you know, I think these workplace trainings are probably bullshit um but something like that and he did he did take a like respectful workplace whatever workplace harassment he did do do a training i don't know if those actually do anything but yeah i mean if somebody is if somebody's not good to work with if somebody's violating rules i don't think you can either there has to be a rule violation right because if there's like there has to be i, I realize that human behavior is there are shades of gray with everything but there has to be an actual you can't fire somebody who hasn't broken a rule, right? There's from a from a labor perspective. I'm <laughs> I just I think that's that's overly you know you can I mean in a, in the ideal sort of libertarian workplace you can you can fire somebody for anything and in many states you can fire people for anything. Um, but I think I think just in terms of uh, of you know protecting your own ass um, as an employer there needs to be an actual rule violation and certainly making sexual harassment falls into that category talking about somebody's appearance or saying you want to have sex with somebody would fall into that category um 
But the complaints against Florian were mostly blown out of proportion. Um, yeah, and he and his behavior changed. There was a complaint, and they dealt with it, and his behavior changed. And I don't think mm-hmm. that any of this would have come up again if there hadn't been this fight over um, over hiring. So in the in the interest of balance, I want to read a few of the th- the things that we're talking about his behavior. Like this is sure. uh, from. Uh, you've probably read Stephen Piantadosi's pinned tweet thread. Mm-hmm. Oh wait, did he? Case. Was this recent? Um, I'm not, not sure when. Uh, uh, August 31, no, 2019. Okay, so it's, it's been up there for a while. So the reports, yeah, one student recalled that. So and he's was, a he's a he's that's Celeste Kid's husband, to be clear. So he's Celeste one of the, Kid's husband, and yes. he was in the department at the time, but he's now yes. at, Berk, at Berkeley yes. as well. Yeah, um, he's one of the people. He's one of the people who left along with. Yeah, so yeah. Jessica Cantlon's husband, Celeste Kid's husband, were also involved in these. Uh, yeah, and he was a yeah. claimant. Um, yes, and his claim was that um, like retaliation, right? Okay, so this is a whole other. This is a that's a whole other storyline that I didn't get into. Mm. And I will say this: it, this is so complicated. Basically, the complainants allege that after. They, that the university retaliated against them for making these complaints. For one thing, they wanted to take their lab. They wanted to uh, take their lab to RIT or something like that. And uh, they wanted. They also wanted an, another couple who were involved in the complaints. They wanted them hired, and the the, the department didn't offer a job to one of their to a, the spouse of someone who had been hired there. I didn't go into this in the piece because it would be a book length to get into yeah, all of this stuff. Yeah. So just suffice it to say, all of the investigations found that their complaints of retaliation were without merit. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the, yeah, this is an interesting uh, element of this because the, where the, where the case is now. So my understanding is the, the white report was the fourth or was that the, that third? was the third. The yeah. third. Okay. But the, the kind of the largest, right? It this was the was biggest the one. Most yeah. Expensive. The, yeah. Yeah. This one was $4.5 million. It was uh White is Mary Jo White. She was a former head of the SEC, just this legendary investigator. Um, so they got like real big guns to, to do this one. Yeah, yeah. So they, I mean, they claim at least that the White report was biased. It was yeah. her, her, she, you know, she was instructed or like implicitly instructed by the university to just uh, make it go away. Yada, and they yada, have yada. no, they have no evidence for this claim. There, you know, this mm-hmm. is the White report found four investigations. Every one of them found the same thing. So they're mm-hmm. basically claiming that all of the investigations were biased against them. Florian also mm-hmm. thinks that the investigations were biased, biased but they were biased against him. Against him. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't, and I don't see why. To me, logically, it doesn't make any sense that the university would be trying to protect this guy. When he clearly is not the, they have, you know, he's not more powerful than Richard Aslan, Jessica Cantlon, a number of people in the department. He's not. Richard Aslan was by far the most powerful person in this whole saga. Um, Yeah, so I think, I mean, look, they've also, they have shown themselves to be capable of lying. They lied to investigators. They lied about Florian's behavior to other people. So I find it very difficult to trust their continued allegations after mm. it is documented that they mm. misrepresented what happened over and over and over and violated Which, confidentiality. They weren't supposed to be talking about this. And they when they talked about it all over the field. They talked to the media. Um, Florian mm. didn't do that. You know, he mm. was the one who, he was, you know, had just as much 
reason to go talk to the media as they did. He could have defended himself, and he didn't do that. Mm-hmm. So they the the lawsuit came after the White Report. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, they they dispute the White Report. They think she made certain legal mistakes, and, and etc. Um, and the lawsuit, the university settled, right? And yeah. it's kind of an unsatisfactory ending to this saga, right? Because, you know, from an outsider's perspective, you, I mean, they would at least claim that, well, you know, why would the university settle? The university was worried that they were going to lose this case. Um, because yeah, I don't this- think that's why the university settled. I think they just wanted to get it to have it done with. Uh, the university tried to get the case dismissed, and the judge disagreed with them. And the university didn't have to pay them; it came out of their insurer, which the university made very clear in their after their in their announcement that they didn't they didn't pay this nine point four million dollars their insurer did. Yeah. So the 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 federal judge university tried to get the case dismissed, and sixteen of seventeen claims were not dismissed. Um, mm-hmm. So just to be clear, that doesn't. That doesn't mean they found the university guilty. All no. it means is, no, we should at least go to trial about this. Right, right. right. Yeah, because the claimants really sort of treat that as a major victory. Um, I mean, it, they won. A, they did a blow win. against the white report. Oh, I don't think it's a blow against the white report at all. I think it's, I mean, they did win. They're, that's completely, that, there's no disputing that. They did win. You mm. know, uh, they ruined Florian Yeager's life. They got paid $9.4 million dollars. They all got prestigious jobs, or Richard Aslan retired, but the others of them, um, the others got prestigious jobs at other universities. They became icons of Me Too. Um, I don't think that means that Florian's guilty in the fact that, you know, this isn't one, you could maybe claim that one investigation would be biased against him or biased against them, but four, these are all independent investigators. Yeah. Why would four of them? And the, and the fact remains that not one of the the so called victims, other than Celeste Kid, where are these women that Florian supposedly harassed and had non consensual relationships with? Who are they? They don't, you know, they don't exist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, I mean, Kid's the only one, really. That well, he didn't have a. I mean, was, sure, was but he didn't of, have a. Yeah. He didn't have a sexual relationship with Kid. Um, they never had sex. It's pretty surprising considering his uh, right. his behavior early on. Um, well, I mean, he slept. He, okay, so over the course of three years, mm. he slept with four women, four of these academics. Mm. So I where mean, did, that's where did, the, where did the eighteen figure? Like, was this just? It seems like like Cantlin was really kind of Aslan. Like, this came from Aslan. Apparently, Aslan was. I, I mean, how would he even from. like allege to know how many people like he slept with? That's yeah. Did he have a name, these 18? No, I mean, he'd have to make up the names. They didn't exist. <laughs> yeah. That's the thing. You so, can, because there, so these policies are meant to protect accusers and victims, right? Hmm. So you can just say, you can't, you can't even say people's names or if they're, you know, if you're involved in one of these investigations, hmm. which makes hmm. it really easy to misrepresent what's happening. So you I say, um, sorry, go ahead sort of what you were getting at there like uh, i totally agree i mean they won um i i went to uc berkeley uh and i was there when they arrived kid and mm. antidosi and they um they talk about this a lot and they're yeah. they're held up as like heroes and yeah. incredibly admirable and brave for what they've done and, and uc berkeley really <laughs> like likes to present itself too as like supporting um 
supporting these brave whistleblowers by hiring these people. Uh, so, but when you read the piece and you see pretty clear evidence that evidence has been misrepresented, that people have been dishonest and stuff like that, it just, you start to feel like there has to be accountability. Uh, you know, obviously you can't have a system where I, I accuse somebody of something and they're found not guilty and now, I, now I'm in trouble. Uh, right. Like obviously right. you can't have that, but if you find clear evidence that I have lied or I've misrepresented evidence, then there has to be accountability. So, I mean, people have suggested Florian should counter sue. Mm-hmm. Um, I I just had this urge to send your piece to some of my old professors at Berkeley just to say, hey, like, there's another side to this story about yeah. your colleagues, but I didn't because I had this realization that like none of them will do anything. Like right. Right. there's no incentive for any of them to rock the boat about this at all. And I kind of wonder if that plays a part in, in sort of the lack of follow-up interest. Uh, yeah, in, in your- I, I was surprised. So I, yeah, I, I mentioned this on Twitter that uh, normally when I write a big story and spend months or weeks on a story, I get invited to do a fair number of shows podcast and radio shows. And that really didn't happen this time, which was surprising to me because this story is a big story. I think that really what it, I think it's just timing, you know, we're because <laughs> of World War Three. I think because you can oh, see uh, why people like, have plenty of energy to debate. They do have plenty uh, of energy for other yeah. bullshit. Like um, New York Times opinion yeah, pieces. Yeah, that is true. You know, but there's an incentive for you can see why most liberal media outlets wouldn't touch this. You can clearly see why. But this is what should be catnip to conservative outlets. Like, I'm surprised that I didn't get invited on Fox News. I have been blacklisted for Fox, from Fox News, so I guess I'm not that surprised. But like what? Megyn Kelly show, I, yeah, I'm, I'm like actually blacklisted. Why? Yeah, Jesse's too. They keep a um, because I, I like like made fun of them on Twitter. Aww. Yeah. But and, everybody uh, does. Everybody. Yeah, I know. Thin skinned over there. Um, yeah. So you know, I, I did expect to get more i expected that it would be a bigger story in terms of media follow-up um the other thing is that you know i expected like i expected backlash but the accusers have done something really smart they haven't said a word if they had come out with a statement if they had refuted it i honestly i thought i was going to get sued I tried to get uh, defamation insurance because I was so concerned about getting sued because they're litigious and they have money and they wouldn't have a chance in hell in a court of law. Um, mm. But it would they've... still be a massive problem for me. You know, it mm. cost mm. me a hundred thousand dollars to get legal representation. Um, but that, I was I was deeply deeply concerned about that. But uh, they took a they took a different tactic in re- in responding to this, which is no response at all, and that is genius it is genius mm. because mm. it will fade mm. from the news cycle much quicker much more quickly if they don't respond to it um so oh, it's totally. been like yeah and i i mean we we're pretty well dialed into like academic twitter and yeah. psychology academic twitter. no one's Nobody. talked about it <laughs> sorry yeah <laughs> i really i really thought it was going to be it was going to be a huge backlash um but yeah just <laughs> it's, it's surprising well i mean because yeah i mean what what are people I mean, I think it, it is a important story, but like, like you said yourself, you don't want to really draw conclusions from it to the broader movement. Um, and mm-hmm. so like, 
like what are we like if we're not really supposed to take anything away from it then it's just one story and why should we care about one Mm -hmm. story yeah i mean i think we should care about one story for the same reason you care about any one story you should care about it for the same reason you care about the idea that he was a harasser um Mm -hmm. you know uh and also i i just it like there's yesterday i was looking at florian's on this list vox published a list during me too of um you know men who'd been accused of things they just published the list of the accused and then did absolutely no follow-up reporting i don't know how many of those people on that list are actually guilty mm-hmm. probably a certain percentage of them but probably a certain percentage of them aren't um you know and i think enough time has has passed now since the height of the me too movement when some of these cases really worth are worth inspecting like the al franken story you know uh i think it was jane mayer reported did impeccable reporting on the, on the Al Franken story a year after uh, I think it was a year after the allegations were made a year after he left the Senate you know Al Franken was not guilty of what was a, what was acu- he was accused of and this didn't just destroy his his career personally I think Al Franken would have made a fantastic presidential candidate you know so there are that story is obviously much bigger than this one um, but, you know, just in, in many of these cases, it's just the allegation was enough to to destroy someone's career, someone's life. Uh, and I just think as a meter, as a member of the media, as reporters, we just need to be doing our jobs and not blindly regurgitating uh, mm-hmm. allegations without doing any sort of actual due diligence. So what in your what in your mind is the ideal outcome like what what would you like to have happened as a result of of this piece it it seems like you're sort of more focused on rehabilitating his reputation rather than ruining theirs would yeah that be fair to say? yeah i think that's true i mean and, and to be clear my job isn't to do either my job is just to tell the story um i hope that i i, I never thought about like i don't like i don't ever have a goal mm. in mind in terms of other than just telling the story and, and hoping as many people read it as possible. I hope that, um, I hope that this goes, this does something to help Florian get his life back. Mm. Um, and I don't want these women's or men's lives destroyed in the process. Uh, and I don't think that they will be because there's a, there's a real imbalance here. Um, mm. you know, the, the things that he did wrong versus the things that they did wrong. I think, I think it's, like fairly clear from the investigations that uh, that the balance of goodness is on his side, not theirs. But I don't want their lives destroyed either. Um, if I were him, I would I would sue them. That's what I would do. I would sue them for defamation. Uh, but he is not a citizen. He's already spent over a hundred thousand dollars on legal representation. Uh, I think he just wants his career back and to have opportunities again. Um, yeah. Did you ever talk to him about that? Yeah, we did talk about it. And uh, I think for him, it's just he doesn't have the money or the... Um, I, think, I think that's a big part of it. But also he, as a non-citizen, I think he's he like is genuinely worried about, about legal issues. Um, yeah, I, so I don't know. If I were said, him, I would probably try to find You said he was disinvited from numerous conferences and none of his yeah. students could publish. What's the status of this now? Like, is he attending conferences? I mean, he's well, still a professor at the university and Yeah, teaching, he, he right? is tenure. Um, mm-hmm. he, was, he was put on leave for a year and a half, but he returned in 2019. 
Uh, I don't know if he's been invited to any conferences lately. His, he's getting way fewer grants, as you can imagine. He had he was really a rising star in this field or a star in this field. Um, and so his opportunities have, as you would imagine, have really declined. Nobody wants to invite the accused predator. I mean, his, his, the allegations against him were not just that he was a sexual harasser. It was that they called him a sexual predator. Who in their right mind would invite the sexual predator to give a keynote at a conference? Um, and, I, and, you know, his partners in the department as well, this has really impacted her career. And one thing that he emphasized to me over and over again was just how bad this has been for his students. So the first conference that he was disinvited from, this was at Georgetown, where Alyssa Newport, the former department head who married her graduate student, uh, where she is. So he was disinvited from that conference. And... Um, and his students' papers had he had uh, he had apparently been in contact. His student papers. This is what he told me. When he initially submitted them, they'd gotten rave reviews from all of the reviewers, and then none of his students' papers were accepted to this conference. After all of this came out, and so for him, that's been. And I did talk to a couple of his students that this has been really. That's one of the things that for him, I think, has been most troubling is that the sort of um, the. It's not just him who's being hurt. It's also these people that he cares about. So, and, and I don't think this piece, you know, this piece is not going to change that. As you've said, it's not making ways. You know, <laughs> I think a lot of people are never going to hear the other side of the story. But I, I'm interested in this though, because he does have supporters. You know, when I was doing like a little bit of research, I, I came across this website it's really strange. Did you, I don't, you've probably seen it. It's basically like a and a about the case, but it's mm-hmm. very pro-Florian. Yeah. And it doesn't say anything on the website about who built it. It's yeah, got an he, email address that... Yeah, he doesn't know who built that either, or at least that's what he told me. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, but it's clearly somebody who uh, had access to a lot of the documents. Do you um, think he could have built it and himself? No. And he, if he had built it himself and had lied to me about that, that would be a huge ethical breach. Um, and I, I don't think that he did. Um, well, there's probably some way to figure out who built it. I don't think it was him, though. It was clearly somebody who's sympathetic to him. Um, yeah, yeah. But well, I mean, sure even it if it doesn't um, make waves in the media, I think that, like academic communities are pretty small and so just like set yeah. like directly sending the article like paul was gonna do like that might actually have an impact if you get people to read it yeah yeah i did i mean i have heard from people like i heard from somebody who uh who runs a journal in the article in the in the in the field who said you know i always believe the allegations against florian and i shouldn't have and i'm gonna invite him to publish so wow. i think and I think for him, you know, I, I've talked to him since it came out, or I've emailed with him since it came out. His career's not going to re the same way. Like Al Franken was fully exonerated by Jane Mayer's reporting. He hosts a podcast now. You know, he's not back in the Senate. Like the allegations, un- like even if you are, even if it's not true, even if you've been investigated four times and cleared four times, even if somebody reports on this stuff, you there's no going back to the way things were before. Um, but I think for him, there is still a palpable sense of relief that at least, at least the story is out there now. Mm. So I've been having some interesting conversations lately because actually cases like this are happening all the time in academia. Uh, not to this level, but 
You know, just recently, I was talking with my lab mates. There was this blog post published where there was this former grad student accusing a PI of like, not sexual harassment. I think they were both straight men, but um, just toxic work environment and abusive. And it, it was like the blog post was pulled down really quickly, but mm. we sort of got to read it just in time. And then so we were talking about it over lunch and pretty much everybody at the table was just saying, well, it's probably true. Right. Because right. why would, you know, why would the low power person come out with such, these accusations against a high power person? There's no incentive to do so. And I was just like, the more I think about this stuff, you know, I've just started sort of gently pushing back on this, these heuristics that people use. Um, like, yeah, I, I do think there's, there's a lot of people that abuse power and everything in the world, but also like, I don't know. You just have to treat these things on a case by case basis. Yeah. And a lot of the time admit that you don't really know the truth. Right. And I don't know. I just think like everybody has this heuristic that it's probably true, but right. for me, there's at least a couple of reasons why that heuristic might not be accurate, at least in the case of academia. So yeah, I, I, that's why, that's why this, the believe women slogan bothered me so much. Um, it's a, it's a stupid, it's a stupid, you know, have you ever met a woman? <laughs> yeah. You know? Well, it's almost, a, it's almost caricaturing. It's almost yes. like the enemies of the movement. That's what yes. they would say you're saying. Right. Like just right. uncritically. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, you know, I think we need to be more skeptical as people. And of course, you can go too far down that rabbit hole where you start to believe no allegations. That's not, you don't want to go down that, that route either. But every case is different. Um, All right. Should I do the, can I do the philosophy yeah, thing now, Yeah, this Rachel? seems like a good time. All right, cool. So we, I probably, you know, we were talking about whether to go here, but like there's this interesting, well, it's kind of interesting. There's this uh, debate in philosophy of like, um, what does a feminist legal system look like? And, hmm. and the argument is kind of like, well, the way the legal system's set up is that, you know, we presume innocence, innocent until proven guilty, um, you know, like, um, and, you know, we, we have a certain boundary of evidence beyond reasonable doubt, for example, is like the standard in criminal cases in the US. And it's basically saying, well, this is sort of a good system if you want a lot of rapists to go unpunished, because mm -hmm. it's hard, very hard to prove rape and so forth. And so the, the basic idea is that if you redesigned a feminist legal system, you might sort of change this presumption of innocence. You might sort of change the threshold of proof for convicting people of rape. And overall, you would get more false positives. So you'd convict more innocent people. Yeah. Um, but you'd also convict more guilty people. Right. And by, by doing so, you might reduce societal incentives for people to rape. Overall, less women get raped, more innocent men go to jail. <laughs> Uh, but from a feminist perspective, that's okay. That's a good outcome. And I like, I kind of am a consequentialist in terms of moral philosophy. So I kind of have to take this argument seriously, at least think through the consequences of it. What do you think? I don't think any system where more falsely accused people go to jail is a moral one. Um, if it's baked into the system. And of course that means that if more guilty people go free, I just think, uh, if I look at, a hierarchy of what's worse. I think convicting convicting innocent people is worse than letting guilty people go free. Um, 
I don't know. I don't know why. And that's so just that the that if, So we could, we say we go the other direction then. Mm-hmm. So if we like, we really care about not convicting innocent people. Say we raise the bar for the threshold of evidence, so we get even less false positives, but also less true positives. Would that be an, that would be an improvement based on what you're saying? Oh gosh, this is why I don't like philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I guess I mean that doesn't sound like a good a good system either. Right. Um, I don't know what the answer here. I mean, uh, thankfully that this is all, this is all theoretical. Um, you know, the system that we have as flawed, as flawed as it is, I think the burden of the burden of proof being on, on, uh, on the prosecutor. Um, yeah. I mean, I think the problem is with cases like rape uh, and sexual assault, they often happen in complete privacy, uh, and, and there are no witnesses and there's really no evidence, um, a lot of the time. And, so it's yeah. kind of like it. It does kind of. That's why we have the phrase "he said, she said" because like, yeah, who knows? That's yeah. what it is. Mm. And so, like, yeah. I don't know. In that case, I think it, that seems like a hard pill to swallow. To say like, I would rather have a guilty man walk free than for us to try to. Because like the the question is like, what are the consequences of having stricter or like mm-hmm. less strict uh, rules of evidence? Um, like if we tend to believe more women and that leads to fewer rapes because people are more afraid of going to jail, then like, well, that, okay. So I think you're making an error there because I don't think that the reason people rape or don't rape has anything to do with consequences. Um, and, and I think one, one way that, that feminism has really failed is, you know, Susan Brown Miller in the seventies put out this argument that, uh, this idea that rape isn't about sex, it's about power. If you talk to sex sexologists, people who study sex for a living, that's completely not backed up by any evidence. It's a philosophical position, but it's not. You know, and I've talked to people who who work with with offenders, people who are actually you know convicted of rape. And if you ask them why you rape somebody, they'll tell you it's about sex, not power. It's because they wanted to fuck somebody. Um, so I think, I don't think that feminism by furthering that perpetuating this idea that rape isn't about sex, I don't think that's actually a, a, a particularly, um, has been, has been very good in preventing things like rape. Cause I think it gives us a false impression of the, of the, uh, of the basis for it. And you can see this even in terms of things like, you know, who think about who rapes people. It's mostly younger men. And the reason for this is because testosterone levels drop as you age. So you don't see too many 80-year-olds being convicted of rape. Yeah, but if testosterone... They might have done it when they were 30, but they don't do it when they're 80. But if testosterone is associated with age, too, like they... like it's Sorry, if it's also associated with power, which I think it is, like, people who have more testosterone probably, like, want to feel more powerful or do feel more powerful, want to exert their power on other people, they're more aggressive. Like, all these things that are associated with wanting to have more sex are also associated with being more powerful, I think. I don't know. Yeah, I just, I think that this is, this is just a slogan that a feminist came up with that it isn't backed up Mm -hmm. by any empirical, empirical data. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, so, so one, so... Legal reformer wouldn't necessarily have to rely on an argument based on incentives. They could just say, well, if we have more true positives, if we're convicting more guilty 
rapist and they're just they're in jail they're not raping people anymore okay. they won't repeat sure. offend. here's here's a really good way to stop repeat offending chemical castration this is really effective you give some basically basic it's hormone blockers you give them a monthly injection and <laughs> the rates of recidivism go way down this is not something that's done very often because it's considered cruel um but i actually think if the, if the main if if re- re- recidivism is the main is the main complaint or the main concern uh chemical castration you know mm. what would you rather have no testosterone or be put in jail as a you know i think i'd probably rather take the chemical castration um but that's a really yeah, effective I- way I mean, yeah, like uh, now that you mention it, it might, that might be a good idea. I, I can't imagine many men, even non-rapists, would. <laughs> no, would, but uh, if it's a compulsion, yeah, no, mm. I mean, but if it is, if it's a compulsion mm. that you have and you're unable to control this, and there's and there's this one easy trick, you know, uh, and yeah, you, it is strange that like, like we're comfortable putting people in jail for like in prison for years, um, but uncomfortable, like against their yeah. will, but uncomfortable, like strapping them down and putting a needle in them if <laughs> but like you know unless it kills I mean, them in which case it's i think fine. it should be right well i mean i think it should even be a it could even be a choice you know this here you get you do 10 years in prison or you uh you take this you, i mean people that, that's the other thing though punishment mm. isn't just about pre- preventing mm. it's about mm. punishing yeah. you know so so there's gotta so, you've got to take that into account when you're when you're coming up with your hypothetical justice system too Cool. Well, that was way off topic. <laughs> we've gone, we've gone a fair bit off topic. Um, do you want to, um, Rachel, ask your uh, completely off topic question before we end? Um, oh, do, uh, I don't know. Do I? <laughs> um, I so know. okay. So basically, before you wrote this article, we were gonna do just a pod, just me and Paul, where we talk about the latest stuff that was going on um and the latest thing that came out that, that people were upset about was leah thomas uh did i say her name right yeah um right. and so we wanted to and since we got you on and you're an expert in these matters <laughs> we wanted to ask you about your thoughts uh on that yeah. so i don't know if you want to talk about that at all sure I don't think that people who've gone through male puberty should be competing against women in sports. It's to me, and it has nothing to do with whether or not Leah Thomas is better, is going to win. Although I do think there's some irony that if you are, if you, I tweeted this yesterday, but if you oppose trans women in women's sports, the best thing for your argument right now would be for Leah Thomas to, you know, blow the, blow the competition out of the water. And if you, uh, if you support trans women in women's sports, you should want her to lose. Um, Yeah, I... But I don't think actually winning or losing really is what matters. I don't think that Leah Thomas should be competing with with biological women. And I, I think that there is some, you know, if you haven't gone through male puberty, I think we can, you can draw a line somewhere. You know, if someone has never, if someone goes on puberty blockers and then cross sex hormones and then never goes through male puberty, I don't think that the advantages that they have uh, are that unfair. Um, but in this case, and the, the thing about this is like, even maybe five years ago, this position that trans women should be are are literally women should be competing in women's sports. I think 
most people would just be like, huh? <laughs> like, that's so obviously wrong. Mm-hmm. But we've come to this place, and I saw some, some polling about it. Something like half of Democrats polled said that they think that trans women should be competing in women's sports. That blows my mind. Because to me, it is so... Have you ever been to a WNBA game? <laughs> like, it is just... The, the difference between male athleticism and female athleticism is so vastly different. And the, and the vast majority of sports, except for, you know, a small number of things where women might have an advantage, something like, I don't know, long-distance swimming, higher fat percentage, it's so clear that there's that the fact that we're having this debate at all is uh, funny. It's actually funny. It's a very much an emperor has no clue. You know, the emperor's dick is showing, and we're all pretending that yeah, it's not. Yeah, I got into a um, long <laughs> argument with someone on Twitter yesterday about, which obviously was a mistake, but um, about Always. about whether it's like transphobic to say to have that position. Um, and I was basically saying like, you can be completely supportive of like every single trans rights issue. And, like, want them to have better health care and be concerned about violence against trans people and, like, all these things that are important issues for trans people and at the same time care about, like, fairness in women's sports. Like, it doesn't – that doesn't make yeah. you transphobic. They're like, no, it's discrimination. Right. It's prejudice. You're, you know, you're transphobic and – I mean, it is discrimination. It is it is sex segregation, but there's a reason it's also, that sports are segregated. Yeah, by I mean, sex. it's also discrimination against men to not have them on the yeah, team. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I, there has been a, a certain amount of transphobia around this conversation. You know, I don't think anybody should be harassing Leah Thomas. There's a British gender critical British British woman named Kelly J who was at this this light, latest meet, and when Leah Thomas is ra- is walking across the the, the pool deck. Kelly J screams, he's a man. There, like that is, I think that is transphobia. Yeah. I think it's harassment. I think she should stop it. I still don't think Leah Thomas should be in the fucking race, though. Um, but that's the thing. I like you can see that support for for trans issues. There's Matt Inglesias posted this, posted some screenshots from a poll the other day, has actually declined in the last couple of years. Very rare that something like that would happen on, you know, in, in, in a sort of identity-based civil rights issue. But and I've been saying this for years. Pushing these fringe positions, trans women in sports, youth transition is going to have a negative effect on the broader trans population because the backlash is going to be huge. And that's what we're seeing right now. And so trans people are actually losing support. Um, And things like, you know, less people now think that trans people should be able to serve in the military than they did four years ago or three years ago. I think that's kind of crazy. Yeah. And so I think that, that activists have done a really poor job of taking this issue in particular, an issue that still most people still, even though this is this is changing, most people have a very fundamental sort of no shit position about it and making this, you know, their cause. So, you know, I think it was I think it's very dumb for the ACLU and in, in, in places like this to be making this their issue. Trans people should have access to healthcare, to housing, to employment like everybody else. But there is a reason that we segregate sports by sex. And, you know, Leah Thomas might win this race, but I, or these races, but I think that uh, she might be the last trans woman, too, because this is clearly... So what would you, there's, there's what would you say, like, trans women are in, like, like Leah Thomas are supposed to do, just, like, not compete? Compete with males. No, compete with males. Sex is we don't we don't separate sports based on gender. We separate them based on sex. And Leah Thomas 
is male, is biologically male. She might be on, you know, I fully believe in, I use people's preferred pronouns. Uh, I don't believe in bathroom bills or anything like that. There are some things that we separate by gender and there are some things that we separate by sex and sports we separate by sex. But at the same um, time... And it's denial of... Like, if she is taking uh, hormones that make her less biologically male, then she would definitely have a disadvantage in a male's sure. team. So... I mean, that's just a choice that she has to make because the other option is is, is just unfair. Yeah. You know, I mean, she could have waited another year or two years before before changing her her sex. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's but, yeah. Like basically, like I, some or, things are just not fair. And, you know, get top surgery. Right, some things aren't fair. You know, get top surgery, but don't go on. You know, she could have kept. You know, she didn't have to take estrogen. There are other ways you can socially transition and 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 stay on you know uh continue to have your t levels or whatever and this this idea that testosterone is is the only thing that you know by suppressing her t levels that that somehow changes the fact that she went through male puberty no her mm. lungs are still bigger her heart's bigger her bones are denser her just mm. look at her size um uh, yeah. yeah it's pretty i mean if you can just look at how she was ranked before transition uh, compared to other right men uh, as she was uh, and then look how she is ranked compared to other women and it's pretty clear i mean uh, people people sort of play this game where it's like oh well there's no scientific proof of this um in terms of like that uh, there's there's no scientific proof that uh i have an advantage after i've gone through this um hormone therapy because you're you know there's all sorts of proof that like men perform better than women but there's so few trans people around or there, there has been to do sort of research on to prove, I don't know if you, you're aware, but I, like I haven't seen any studies specifically looking at residual advantage um, after the hormones. So there, there are, there's a small number of, of studies. There's a, a trans woman named Joanna Harper, who is a long distance runner. And she, these studies are really small. So she looked at eight long distance runners and you do lose muscle mass when you start taking estrogen or when you, you know, stop taking testosterone or stop having testosterone in your body. You do lose muscle mass. You do weaken, uh, weaken a little bit. Uh, but that it's not so – I think – I can't remember the exact – it's something like you lose 5% of your strength or something like that. It's, a, it's like 5 to 10%. Hmm. Yeah, you do, you do lose some, some strength for sure. But there are many other testosterone is sort of we use that as sort of this catch all as though testosterone mm. is the only factor involved. Oh. It's not, you know, mm. it's just not. So, uh, so yeah, the studies that no, have, I don't think so either. And I, I really don't think many people do. I was really surprised by the fifty percent figure you gave before because I mean, didn't even Glad sort of refuse to share data about about the sport issue in particular because it was so overwhelming. Well, this was just in, this was just Democrats. So it was, yeah. I, and this was a, I don't know who did this poll. I think it was YouGov or something like that. Matt Iglesias posted it the other day. So I don't know, I'm not that surprised. Cause like once something becomes a partisan issue and it sort of, it just sort of takes off yeah. and people know, like, mm. like I, even though most people don't support trans women in women's sports, like, the narrative and sort of like the voices that we hear are ones who are saying like, mm -hmm. if you're a good person, if you're not transphobic, yes. then you have totally. to totally. like support this. And so totally. totally. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the media coverage, like I heard this, I, this just appalling piece about, about this on NPR and they interviewed Joanna Harper, this trans, uh, trans, uh, sports scientist. They interviewed, uh, a trans, a trans man. So, uh, this trans man activist named Skylar Baylor or something like that, who was a D1 swimmer. Um, and they interviewed uh, the father of a swimmer. They didn't interview any women for the, or any, like, the only female, actual female in this piece was a trans guy. Um, you know, and it just made it sound as though it is a foregone conclusion that this is this is the appropriate thing. Just appalling, appalling article and or radio piece. And you can't. You can't like open Twitter without seeing people push back on this. And so this idea that they couldn't like find anybody willing to talk about it. Martina Navratilova talks about it all the time. Diana Nyad, who's a famous long distance swimmer. It's not that hard to find people willing to talk about this, but you're right. You will be like immediately pegged as a pegged as a bigot or as transphobic if you don't think that this is appropriate, which is just bizarre. So you gotta, I, I think you gotta like stop, basically stop caring when people. Yeah, call that you was bigot. that was my conclusion as well. Is like I, yeah. I know that I'm not transphobic, and you can keep calling me yeah. that. That's fine, but like, yeah, yeah. Sorry, Paul. And 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 that's also a, a, a bad tactic on their part because do you really want to destigmatize transphobia to the point where people start saying, okay, whatever, <laughs> like, yeah, if that's what it is, I guess I'm transphobic. If I don't think that biological male should be on the women's volleyball team, then I guess I'm a transphobe. Okay. Well, now we're getting canceled for sure. <laughs> yeah. So thank you. Your last podcast, Rachel, for the yeah, question. No problem. Katie for the answer. I mean, I could bring up the New York Times uh, editorial, which that would get us canceled because apparently that's even more controversial. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I don't know. It's always just, something. The whole conversation so lame. It's so lame. Even... Nobody ever changes their mind on this shit either. It's so lame. No. No. Although I did, I did agree with somebody called Keith Payne, who I'm sure you've never heard of, but he's like my academic arch nemesis <laughs> on it. Mm. He, he actually did a tweet. I agree. But anyway... Um, I know you have to be somewhere at noon, which is fast approaching. We really appreciate you coming on. Uh, and thanks for writing the piece. It, it was really good. Can you, can um, you just say that, and... uh, it's better to ha- do a podcast with us than with Jesse just on the record. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> it is. Jesse is the worst person. In- <laughs> <Terrible>. <laughs> okay. Thank you for that. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, this was right, great. Cool. And, uh, yeah, I'm, really again recommend that people go and read the piece um listen to bar pod yeah. and so yeah what's next for you who's the next sexual predator you're gonna bill <laughs> <Phil> cosby <laughs> <laughs> Katie Herzog. why everyone is wrong about the cosby case all right look forward to that awesome. thanks for having me guys all, all right, right. bye bye bye